What is necessary now is to push the FCC to come up with a comprehensive plan and not let up until it's done. Welcome to episode 375 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Federal grant funding can make or break plans to deploy community broadband networks. Local governments, cooperatives, and internet access companies all apply for funding when they find themselves eligible. We've had guests on the show in the past to discuss the Connect America Fund, also known as CAF, and the manner in which the FCC has chosen to determine which applicants receive awards. This week, we have a Connect America Fund expert on the show, consultant Carol Maddy. Why is she an expert in all things CAF? Because she is one of the people who initially developed the program. She's also worked on the National Broadband Plan. Carol talks about the broad goals of the Connect America Fund, and she reviews the process that has included the first two rounds of subsidy awards. Carol gives us some insight into the politics of CAF and the challenges the FCC has faced in developing the program. Christopher and Carol talk about the pros and cons of the program and what's next. Now here's Christopher with Carol Maddy, Principal of Maddy Consulting. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, speaking today with Carol Maddy, the Principal of Maddy Consulting. Welcome to the show. Hello, Chris, and everyone who's listening. I really appreciate you taking the time. I feel like you're um, someone who um, has a lot of knowledge about something that's very important in terms of connecting rural America, and the rest of us have in many ways been trying to figure it out. And so I'm hoping to um, pick your brain a bit today and uh, and share that knowledge uh, with folks um, and give a, a broader perspective of the Connect America Fund. Sure. Happy to help. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> Let me ask you first, before you were the principal of Maddie Consulting, um, what were you doing at the Federal Communications Commission? I was the deputy bureau chief in what's known as the Wireline Competition Bureau. Uh, and in that role, I basically supervised the team that uh, developed the Connect America Fund. And also, I worked on all of the other universal service programs that the FCC has. I had gone back to the FCC in 2009 and actually worked on the National Broadband Plan the chapter that addressed broadband deployment, and then I stayed on at the FCC to work on implementing those recommendations. And can you just give us a sense, um, what was life like before the Connect America Fund in terms of how did the Universal Service Fund work then? Oh, well, (laughs) I I think it's, I I first started working on universal service actually quite some time ago in 2000, and I did a prior tour at the FCC when I was the deputy bureau chief. And I, you know, I newly came into that role and had been working on local competition and other issues. And I vividly remember when the staff briefed me on what was known as the high cost program. And I remember just like scratching my head thinking, this is the most complex Byzantine set of rules I've ever heard of. It was very complicated. (laughs) Uh, A lot of rules that were, you know, what I call the product of a, a world that no longer exists today in terms of you know, regulatory distinctions and sort of arcane things to do with cost separations and notions of interstate and intrastate and 
and you know embedded subsidy flows that the FCC over the course of 20 years after the 96 Act had been working to basically make the subsidies explicit. You know, back in the day, way back when, it was basically, you know, AT&T, Ma Bell had most of the country, and there were small, you know, small telcos in the areas that Ma Bell didn't want to serve. A lot of this was just embedded into rates and intercarrier payments, and the idea of the Universal Service Fund is to make that funding go out the door in a more, you know, transparent way so that people would see what subsidies are being provided to the telcos. I think that's, it's a really interesting way of framing it because for a lot of us, we just think of it as um, modernization as having to do with, okay, now we're going to subsidize broadband rather than subsidizing telephone calls. (laughs) Right, right. And there's some legal reasons and I, you know, I won't, you know, I won't bore you with all the details, but Part of the complication here is that the 96 Act speaks of universal service as an evolving level of telecommunication service. And, you know, while the FCC has sort of flip-flopped over the years as to whether broadband is a telecom service or an information service, you know, at the time we were doing these reforms, you know, broadband was an information service. And and so, you know, the FCC had to sort of thread the needle in terms of how it could support broadband networks. um, and, And to do so, it had to tie it to the provision of voice service. Right. I think that's that's a very good point. And and in our discussion of Connect America Fund, I don't think we're going to discuss that connection, although it is important and it remains there today. Um, But I think we can um, let people know they can listen to uh, perhaps a future podcast or just a different one. Sure, sure. And I don't want to get into details (laughs) of that. I want to, you know, I want to talk about the Connect America Fund. (laughs) Right. And so So. let's let's talk about the Connect America Fund. So when you were designing it, you mentioned you wanted to make the the subsidies more transparent. Uh, but, But more broadly, what were the goals of the Connect America Fund as you were drafting it? Well, you know, big picture, it was to transform this existing program, which was just this mishmash of multiple different funding streams with no requirement to use the funding to deploy broadband. The idea was to transform it into a program that would explicitly make broadband as the goal. And the goal was obviously to make broadband as universal as voice services today. Um, But we had a couple of you know, additional specific goals. I mean, we wanted to create accountability for the companies that receive the funds with clear enforceable performance obligations. And we wanted to target the funds to the areas that the private sector isn't willing to serve without a subsidy, um, meaning no funding for areas with unsubsidized competitors. And we were hoping to transition to a more incentive-based approach with funding available for new technologies and non-incumbents that want to serve rural areas. And, And last but not least, we were trying to ensure that the funding was provided in an efficient way with no wasteful expenditures. Now, thinking on a lot of those issues evolved over time, but big picture, that was sort of, those were the goals that were motivating us. And was there an additional goal, um, which I I 
I don't I can't explain why I thought it was, but I think there was um in and that has to do with the the cost of the universal fund has been going up for so long. One of my impressions was that you were seeking a way that the federal government could um ultimately lower the amount it would be paying over time by investing in technologies that would no longer require subsidies in the future. There was language certainly in the broadband plan and in some of the FCC orders, you know, you know, about potentially reducing the amount of subsidies that would be required. Uh, but, you know, when the FCC originally created the Connecting America Fund, it took the approach of saying, well, we're currently spending about $4.5 billion a year, and we're going to set the budget at $4.5 billion. But certainly the notion was that through competition um, and the introduction of new technologies, it would be possible to, over time, lower the cost of of making universal service possible. Now, I'm going to try and sum up rounds one and two, and then you're going to laugh and, and explain to everyone uh, how ignorant I am of of it. But but in so we're we're kind of we're near the tail end of round two of the Connect America Fund. I think um, it's fair to say we're about to have major auctions for the um, the third round, which has been renamed. Uh, but but in rounds one and two, effectively, I think most of the money was reserved to go to first the companies that were already providing service in an area, um, as. As you mentioned, there, these are areas in which there's no competitor, um, and so most of the money basically went to those areas. And if the provider, say AT and T or a, a small independent company, um, wanted the money, then they would receive it, and there was certain obligations. If they didn't, then it went into a pool that was auctioned to um, entities that wanted to bid on it. Is that more or less how the how we've dealt with it thus far? With one adjustment to what you said. Basically, the FCC in 2011 created two tracks. One track is what you just described, but that track basically applied to the areas that were served by the largest companies, so specifically AT&T and Windstream and Frontier and Consolidated and Verizon and I might be forgetting one or two more, CenturyLink and um, Hawaii Telecom. Um, so that what you just described was like to offer the money and give the companies an opportunity to accept it. And if they turn down the money, the money would go up for auction. So that's what we think of as phase two of the Connect America Fund. There was a completely separate track for the small telcos, the small independents and the, you know, the telco cooperatives. The FCC did a variety of things that impacted those companies, but basically, you know, from a big picture perspective, there was a decision to keep them on the system that they already had been on with some nips and tucks along the way. And then subsequently, a number of years later, in 2016, the FCC decided to offer more money to that group of companies in exchange for building more broadband. But the FCC has not you know, imposed a regime where those smaller telco pot of money would be up for auction, you know, by and large. Okay. And I was actually just checking in with uh, some of the Minnesota companies and um, th that, pro I think a lot of those are now what's called the ACAM approach, exactly. right? Exactly. Yep. 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 That's exactly right. And I think they're required to build to 25.3 with the money, although nearly all of them seem to be building with fiber. And so they're right. well exceeding the expectations. Right. And that's a good thing. I mean, and and I think oh, that's yes. one of the things to keep in mind. When the FCC has set these minimums, 
the FCC's view was not that the company would just do the minimum and no more. And there, you know, throughout, you know, this process, the FCC has, there's language in FCC orders saying we encourage companies receiving the money to build future-proof networks and, you know, we want them to do more. It's just they're not mandated to do more. And in fact, as you say, you know, a number of the companies that accepted ACAM are, are doing fiber to the home. And, and, you know, from the FCC's perspective, that's a good thing. I agree. And in some ways, <laughs> I have to say, like, I feel like the FCC has conducted an experiment in which um, the expectations of my organization, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, have been pretty borne out, which is that I feel that the largest companies have um, have basically done the minimum amount to get the money, whereas I think the smaller independent companies and certainly the, specifically the, the cooperatives that, that we've seen have figured out how to stretch that money to do the most with it, um, which is where you and I, I think, first met face-to-face at the Montana Telecom Association, um, you know, where I was saying that I thought the FCC had made a huge mistake in even allowing uh, companies like AT&T and CenturyLink to have access to this money. And so, you know, I'm curious now as we're looking back, um, you know, do you think it makes sense to have started there? Well, I think you have to understand the political context. Um, Giving the right of first refusal to the large incumbent providers fundamentally was a political decision. And, you know, back in 2011, the idea that you would just do a flash cut and eliminate the funding for the largest telcos completely and go straight to auction, it just wasn't going to happen. I mean, that there was language in the broadband plan that, you know, suggested that that would be a good idea. But, you know, the political reality was that that just wasn't possible when we actually worked on implementing it. And so, you know, while a lot of people, you know, have criticized the FCC, the way to think about it is that phase two program was in essence, it was a six year transition. It's like the FCC said, we're going to give you money for a specified amount of time, and we're going to require you to do something. And then after that, time period, then we're going to open it up to auction. And that that was the mindset. Well, I think to argue against myself in, in a position that I I quite like in terms of finding ways of of not subsidizing AT&T as rapidly as possible and, and similar companies, I have to think that if, if I was the one making the decision and I decided to go in terms of just doing that flash cut, um, these are areas in which some of these large telephone companies have been looking to get out of anyway, and it could have given them an excuse to basically um, walk away from landline service even potentially that would have been devastating in these areas where people really count on that. Yeah, I mean, they certainly have argued, you know, you know, because there were some areas of the country where the FCC did cut off their funding, and they argued that that was unlawful. And in fact, they even took the FCC to court on that. And the FCC, you know, ultimately prevailed in that decision, because the judge recognized that this was part of a long range, multi step plan to, you know, change the overall paradigm on how the subsidies were provided. And, you know, the FCC got deference on that. But I mean, you're right. I mean, part of the problem is if you flash cut to something, there can be dislocations and you don't know how it's going to turn out. Another thing to think about is, you know, it took the FCC literally from 2011 until 2018 to figure out how to do an auction. Uh, And, you know, if the FCC had just said, we're going to cut off the money and go straight to auction, I, I am sure the auction would have happened sooner. But the point is, 
the FCC had to go through a lot of processes even to figure out how to do an auction. I mean, this was the first major auction for universal service subsidies that, you know, has occurred in the United States. And and there were, were a lot of arguments back and forth even about how you do that in the first place. I want to come back to that in a second, but before we we talk about the auction, um, what else did did CAF get right, and where do you think we might have made different decisions based on uh, looking back now? Well, I certainly think CAF got it right in terms of targeting the money to areas where there aren't unsubsidized competitors, and it got it right for setting you know clear deployment obligations, um, and and I think it you know CAF got it right and did a good job of encouraging companies to transition to a system with more certainty. And, you know, that's the ACAM program and, you know, the phase two auction, the notion that if you provide companies with certainty as to what their revenue flows will be for a 10-year period, that gives them the ability to do long-range planning, borrow money if necessary, to, you know, invest in the infrastructure you need. Um, so I think that, you know, all of those were good things. Um, I think, you know, and, and the auction itself, you know, I think the FCC did a good job of spurring competitive interest. And, you know, there were a variety of different bidders in that phase two auction. And I think that was a success. But, you know, in hindsight, I can say, you know, the biggest mistake in my view was to be too timid in setting the performance standards for the companies receiving the money. You know, when the FCC first set up the Connect America Fund, it said that the standard for, you know, recipients of funding was to provide 401 and then it upped it to 101 before it handed out the money to the large carriers. And, you know, looking back now, you know, I I, I wish that the FCC had been a little bolder. Um you know, I think it it was it, part of the problem is the FCC has has been too timid and too fearful of just sort of thinking about how you should be more forward looking on where the com- where the country is going to be down the road. Yeah, I just for a second the the political reality I assume must be challenging in the FCC because when you were making these decisions at that time, the senators weren't railing on you for um, setting your sights too low. I I wonder if you had a sense that there might be political backlash if you'd set your sights much higher Um, or is the concerns of senators who write letters less of an issue when you're figuring these things out in the bureaus? I don't really have a sense of that. Well, I I actually have no memory whatsoever of Congress weighing in on what the definition of broadband should be, um, you know, that just, that wasn't really, uh, you know, Congress wasn't really active on those issues back then, to my recollection. I mean, certainly, you know, in the last few years, we've seen a lot more focus in Congress on the broadband maps and the fact that, you know, their constituents don't have service. But back in 2011, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, really, you know, it's kind of funny. I don't really remember, um, you know, who was pushing for 401. And, you know, I mean, it it was just, you know, 401 was the recommendation in the broadband plan. And honestly, it just got adopted in the Connect America Fund without a lot of further thought, to be honest. 
Yes, I, actually, someone um, was just um, in, a, in an email chain discussing that uh, the national broadband plan basically called for um, a lot of the people, all everyone living in cities effectively to have a 100 megabit download and maybe 20 megabit upload or something like that. Right, and that right. rural areas would still have 4.1. And so um, 10.1 is even better than what was foreseen. But we right. still, let's hope, can do a lot better than that. Um, so let's, let's talk briefly about the auction specifically, because I think that despite the fact that I would have liked to have seen some of the weights different to lead to more gigabit investment, um, I do think that the auctions and specifically the transparency around the auctions is one of the most laudatory or one of the things that I would most praise this FCC under um, Chairman Pai um, for getting right. I think the process of the auction worked very, very well. Um, you know, I had been working on the auction rules up until the time I left the FCC in early 2017, and then obviously, you know, the administration changed, and Chairman Pai made it a priority to get this done. And I have to, you know, say hats off to him for getting it done, um, and and for moving forward on these issues. And you know, from all I can tell, from a process standpoint, everything went beautifully. And so I just recently saw some some criticism that the reverse auctions hadn't been proven to work from someone I have I hold in high regard in in Maine, and uh, and I would say that that's not been my perspective. I think the auctions showed that not only um, is it a good way to distribute the money um, among many flawed ways of distributing money like this, but that I'm very comfortable arguing about the minutia of, of around it, but but generally keeping this approach to do the twenty billion dollars that'll go out in the next round. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a difference between, you know, did the was the auction a success and will it yield a success in terms of performance? I mean, we clearly know that the auction spurred a lot of competitive interest and new providers that have indicated they want to serve these areas and certainly with speeds far above the minimum that the FCC set for the auction. Now, obviously, we're going to have to wait and see. Like anything in life, you know, it isn't over till it's over and you've got to see how it all plays out. And so, you know, there could be situations where, you know, some of the winning bidders don't perform, but that's no different than anything else in life. I mean, even if it is the case that in some specific instances, a particular provider you know, fails to perform or meet the obligations that it has agreed to in the auction, that doesn't mean the auction was a failure because, uh, you know, I'm expecting, you know, by and large, you know, most of those winning bidders will actually deliver what they said they were going to do. Yes, I, I, I think that that's what I would expect also. One of the criticisms that I've had, I'm curious how you would respond to it, is that um, we had in the years that you were working on this, we knew that there was, for instance, the cooperatives of North Dakota um, and a number of other independents, in, in particularly, I would say, in Illinois, um, but but in the Midwest generally, we, we saw a lot of them really doing the hard work of figuring out how to invest. And I felt like they got passed over a bit when it came to this money because they had already done their job, which to me seems like... Uh, a missed opportunity because if anything, we would want to, I would think, figure out how to reward companies that had proven they knew how to invest in rural America. And it seemed like that wasn't something that was really possible until we got to the auction phases. And I'm just curious, I think you're off, you're working with a number of these sort of companies now. And I'm just curious how you respond to that. Well, I think part of it is you have to go back to the fact that the FCC created an overall budget. And, you know, as I said, 
earlier in this podcast, the FCC decided back in 2011 it was going to set a budget of $4.5 billion total. And it recognized that, you know, the geographic areas where the price cap carriers operate, you know, there was by and large a woeful lack of investment there. And it was trying to dedicate more money to those areas. And I want to emphasize we're talking about the areas, not the companies. I mean, the mindset was the consumers in those areas don't have service and we need to figure out a way to channel more dollars to those geographic areas. And but because of that finite budget, it's a zero-sum game. If you're providing more money to one, one part of the country, by definition, that means there's less available on the other side. Um, you know, the FCC went through various machinations uh, of the policies that it would implement for the smaller carriers like those cooperatives that you mentioned. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, you know it, it's gotten back on course and has, you know, done some reforms and so forth. And I think now those companies have the certainty they need to move forward. Um, you know, so it was a, it was a bit of a difficult time, but I think, you know, big picture now, you know, the rules of the road have been set for both sides of the house, so to speak, both the areas with the large, you know, where the large incumbents operate as well as the areas where the smaller incumbents operate. It's really my question was just, I guess, rehashing this other issue of I sure wish, you know, in, in my ideal world, it would have been a situation in which um, the FCC would have effectively said, hey, you know, co-op in southeastern South Dakota, you did a great job in your area. We're going to give you money for the Centrelink area. But as you noted, that's um, politically well, but that, unaware I mean, and that, dangerous. Well, that's exactly, that is exactly what this RDOF auction is all about. I mean, the idea is that CenturyLink is no longer going to be automatically entitled to this money after 2020. And that cooperative that's next door is going to have the opportunity to bid to greatly expand their service area into that neighboring territory. So, you know, yes, it took a long time coming. You know, it, it's taken years to get to this point, but that is precisely, I mean, as I, it just goes back to the, the flash cut. The FCC didn't want to do it immediately. And now the RDOF is the opportunity for all of those companies out there that want to expand their service territory into neighboring areas where consumers are not served and have the opportunity to get the subsidies that up until now have gone to the incumbent. Great segue into how I wanted to, to finish off our discussion. The RDOF is the Rural Digital Opportunities Fund, which yeah. I, I like to remind people, um, you know, anybody who's in charge of anything at the federal government or even the state government or sometimes local governments, they like to rename things so they can get more credit for them. <laughs> it's yes, really Yes, I'm well right? aware of that. I, I was Honestly, I was a little miffed when they renamed it, but then I realized I did the exact same thing because we renamed the High Cross Program and called it the Connect America Fund. So I get it. I understand why they did that. <laughs> so one of the questions that I really wanted to ask you was, I mean, I'm working on comments right now about um, about how this fund should work. We're talking about money that's going to be dispersed from 2020 to, through 2030. And to me, the FCC proposal that, um, that the minimum speed delivered is 25.3 
um, with the money, I believe, um, is it looks a lot like the same thing with 10-1 in which you think that um, one lesson you've learned is that the FCC should have been more aggressive. Um, to me, I would think that, first of all, a lot of these entities that are bidding on it are going to surpass that. I have no doubt. But nonetheless, the fact that anyone could be getting a check in 10 years for delivering that level of, of speed to me seems worrisome. Well, I actually share your worry. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm concerned myself that 10 years down the road, you know, 25-3 is going to seem as inadequate as 4-1 seems to us today or even 10-1. And, and the problem is that the FCC keeps setting the minimum speed based on today's definition of broadband. And what it really needs to do is be projecting what our definition of broadband is going to be at the end of the term, or at least at the end of the deployment cycle, which means forecasting out where are we going to be six or seven years from now. And that that's kind of a fundamental problem um, that I think, you know, that sort of thinking has, has not um, prevailed thus far. And, you know, I'll be interested to see all the comments on that issue when folks file comments this week. Are you interested in tipping your hand on any other changes that you'll be recommending in comments? Well, I think another issue, I honestly, I'm very concerned about front-loading all of the budget into what the FCC is calling phase one of the RDOF because as as we talked about a little earlier, you know, there's a problem with the broadband mapping and basically the FCC is proposing to put 80% of the RDOF budget into the first RDOF auction and target it to areas based on the Form 477 data, which say the areas are unserved and then defer to a second auction, um, areas that may be partially served. And it, it just seems to me it doesn't make sense to put all of your money up front um, if you haven't yet properly sized the scope of the problem. I mean, there's no question that there are plenty of unserved people in census blocks that are showing up today on the FCC's map as served because under the FCC rules, a company, even if it only serves or makes available service to a tiny corner of a census block, you know, the FCC counts that whole block as served, and that's a real problem. And I, I'm just worried that, you know, at least as proposed by the FCC, you know, they may be putting too much money up front and not not leaving enough money um, to take care of the full job that needs to be done. Do you know when the, the second, the rest of the money would be allocated? Well, the FCC is vague about it. And it says, you know, there'll be a phase two auction once we have improved data, but it doesn't say when that's going to happen. And one thing I've learned over time is everything takes longer than you expect it to. And obviously, looking ahead, 2020 is an election year. And, you know, with the potential of a change in leadership at the FCC, who knows, you know, if and when that second auction would occur. And, and one of the issues is sort of how do you design this program so that there's more than one opportunity for companies to, you know, compete to get the funding to serve the areas that need to be served. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I would imagine this is a, a pretty significant issue because you can imagine that a, a company, um, a co-op, a local company, whoever, would be able to bid differently if, for instance, there are um, 10 contiguous blocks rather than two blocks right. that are surrounded by areas that today are not eligible but may be eligible when we have better mapping. 
Right, exactly. That is exactly the point. Uh, you know, people, you know, companies don't build networks according to census blocks. You build a network to go from point A to point B. And if you've got a situation where, you know, four or 10 or, you know, however many census blocks in the middle are not eligible for funding, even though, in fact, they're unserved people there, you know, that's a real problem. And that could end up having the exact opposite consequence in terms of not getting the result we want. And I think that, you know, now I want to be clear, I'm not saying the FCC should wait until it has perfect data to do any auction, because then I'm afraid, you know, we'll be waiting three years before we have the next funding opportunity. And that doesn't make sense either. But I am saying I think that, you know, a program of several opportunities to compete for this funding um, would make sense. And I think the budget needs to be reallocated in a more even way so that you, you know, you're making some money available in this first auction, an additional amount of money available in the second auction. And another point is, I think it's premature just to say we're going to have two auctions and then we're done. I mean, in my view, we're not done until we actually have universal service. And if it turns out in the second auction that there are places in the country that don't get it winning bids, the FCC needs to be prepared to do it another time or look at other solutions. You can't just say we're done and then you know throw up our hands and say some areas of the country, you're out of luck. Nobody wanted to bid. Yes, I'm, I'm in full agreement on those points. Um, is there anything else that, that you wanted to mention in terms of the Connect America Fund before I kick you off the show? Uh, well, I think one of the things to keep in mind is over the years I'd speak at conferences and other things and uh, you know at various times people would criticize the FCC and I think uh, you know I want to say to your listeners you know the FCC's intentions truly have been in the right place these issues are complicated they're hard and they're very political, and the FCC has been moving in the right direction. I mean, it, it obviously, we all wish it could have happened faster, and it just doesn't work that way, and that's just a function of government. But the FCC is pointed in the right direction, and I think, you know, what is necessary now is to push the FCC to come up with a comprehensive plan and not let up until it's done. All right. Well, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to come on, especially as I've been pretty public in, in criticizing this program in ways that um, I, I think you would agree. Um, I mean, I know that you would agree, but I would also say um, at times it's easy to sit on a bar stool and to say how the world should be. But when you actually wrestle with these, it always turns out to be much more difficult than you think. Yeah. Amen. I agree with that. So thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it. That was Christopher with Carol Maddy, principal of Maddy Consulting, discussing the Connect America Fund. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow MuniNetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at MuniNetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount helps keep us going. 
Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 375 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast.